0: Uh, my name is Scott. If you haven't met me, I'm uh, a chaplain in UCD, and I help coordinate the young adult ministry here at Holy Trinity. Um, and I also am a diocesan reader in the Church of Ireland, which basically means I get the chance to wear. Uh, if you're friends with me on Facebook, you'll probably have seen the picture of me wearing wonderful um, robes um, that are very traditional in the Church of Ireland, but not what I used to, well, not what I'm used to at all. And last week was uh, Christ the King Sunday, and I was asked to preach out in Houth. So I went, and I. Got got my robes and I went all the way out there and I was making sure I had everything, you know, all good and sorted. And it's quite a complicated procedure if you're going to wear a microphone and robes at the same time. And uh, so I I managed to get the microphone through and at some point during the process, I managed to flip it from mute to live just before I went to use the lavatory. Now, I don't know what anyone else heard, right? But it was only afterwards when we got up and I realized I can hear myself through the sound system. And I don't know how long people have been able to hear me for. And I'll be honest with you, I flipped it to mute. I I think everything was fine from there. But if I'm honest with you, as a person, I would actually rather it was live for that than for me singing. Um, But we were talking about Christ the King Sunday and... um, um, and we are beginning this journey from our, our uh, we as a community here are moving from the, the coming kingdom series to the promised king. And we, um, we really felt that like, as we were preparing for this series, that instead of focusing on the gospel readings for Advent, we actually wanted to look back into the Old Testament to, um, to the readings for Advent that throughout the, the, um, the first half of the Bible point us towards this promised king. So to do that, we kind of have to talk about Advent. So let's, let's talk about Advent. Advent comes from the Latin word adventus, which means coming. And, and throughout Christian history, we've celebrated three, we, three ways in which Christ comes into the world. The first way is in the flesh, in Jesus, which we celebrate at Christmas. The second way is in our hearts on a day-to-day basis, the way that Jesus makes himself manifest through our lives and through our experience of him. And the third is his eventual return, the second coming of Christ, where he will make all things new. And during the season of Advent, we reflect on and we identify with the ancient longing of the people of God for their Messiah to come into the world. They were living in a broken and hurting world um, with unredeemed and unresolved stories, and they were crying out for all things to be made well, for God to reveal himself. And Advent, as a season in the church calendar, is a season of us waiting and preparing like they did. But we wait and prepare to celebrate Christmas, the way in which Christ comes into the world in flesh. So as we wait, we look forward to Christ's eventual return, but we also look backward to the stories of those who have gone to before. And as we look backwards, the words and the lies of the prophets, they teach us how to wait. So let me... Um, begin with some verses. This is from Jeremiah chapter 33. Um, uh, Jeremiah, the Lord says through Jeremiah, the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which it will be called the Lord is our righteousness. So this is a prophecy of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a prophet, and to understand what he's doing and the the role that he plays, it's important that we understand what the word prophet means. Their writings, they benefit us, and they're part of the richness of our Christian tradition, but they're not written primarily to us. They're written to a people in a time and a place with a particular purpose. Tremper Longman III, which is the coolest name ever, um, says this, Nope. (laughs) Let's go back a second. That is another version of a prophet, Um, uh, (laughs) one that very often comes to mind when people think about a prophet today. They think of Homer and the end is near. Um, But then Tremper Longman III says, when most people think about the Old Testament prophets, they first identify them as those whom God uses to reveal the future to his people. It is important to realize that the prophets talk about the future in order to evoke a present response from their contemporaries. They're trying to do something in the space in which they live, not some future time, not some future people, though future times and future peoples can benefit from it. It's the people around them, the people in relationship with them, who are called to be transformed by this. And we sometimes imagine that, like, when we look through the Old Testament, that the prophets' lives happened consecutively and in the order that the books are laid out in the Old Testament. But that's not the case. So let's take a look at a terribly designed um, chart, which will help us explain it. So, somebody had a lot of fun with clip art here with this, which I actually find upsetting and offensive. Um, but you can see, uh, so on the, uh, on the far left, you see 10th, 9th, 8th, 7th, 6th centuries B.C. Okay, right? So that's from 1000 B.C. to about 500 B.C. And then um, if you skip over one, one to the list, you have the kings of Judah. So these are the different kings and rulers of the day, leading all the way up to the 70-year ca- captivity that began in 586 B.C. And what you see on the left-hand side is you see the prophets. Actually, some of them lived consecutively with each other and not in the order in which we might assume based on the order that they're laid out in the Old Testament. And visuals like this are really, really helpful for us to actually actually see the world in which they were living. And they, they make certain things really clear. One of the things that I find this makes most clear to me is that Obadiah needs to get his act together right? Obadiah is up at the top one. He's there for eight years, one year, six year, and then 40 years of Joash, right? He writes a book that's one page long. Obadiah, get your act together. Th- there is definitely more you could contribute to this. This is lazy. Um, <laughs> Jeremiah, I jest, obviously, uh, Jeremiah overlaps with um, Ezekiel, um, with Nahum and Zephaniah, and he also overlaps, uh, overlaps with Daniel But um, there are actually two prophets operating at the same time, but in different places with different messages. Daniel, after the destruction of Jerusalem, has been carried off to Babylon, and that's where God is speaking through him. And Jeremiah is left in Israel in the ashes of a place that has been devastated by the Babylonians, and he's prophesying there. And so they live at the same time from the same people, serving the same God, and yet in different places with different messages. So Jeremiah, he, begins, he was called by a prophet uh, to be a prophet from the 13th year of good King Josiah, which is about 636 BC. And his ministry continues through the 18th year of Zedekiah's reign when Jerusalem falls to the Babylonians. So that's about 587 BC. So he, De- Jeremiah's ministry is fascinating, it's heartbreaking, and it's sometimes hilarious. In Jeremiah 13, it says, The word of the Lord came to me and told me go and buy, and I'm translating into common parlance today, their words are linen loincloths. Today, those words are underpants. Um, The word of the Lord came to me and said, go and buy underpants. Put them on and do not wash them. And that's the instructions. Jeremiah's like, okay, I'll be honest with you. I needed new ones anyway. So he goes, and he buys his underpants, and he puts them on, and he doesn't wash them. That's, that's, that's how the story goes. And then it says, And the word of the Lord came to me again, presumably after several days. He said, take off those underpants and go and bury them by the river Euphrates. Okay, Lord, I am your servant. <laughs> he goes, he takes off his underpants, and he goes, and he buries them beside um, uh, the river Euphrates. The word of the Lord came to me a third time and told me to get my underpants back, so I went and dug them up, and they were ruined. And then he told me that the pe- to, to tell the people that if they continued to live the way they were living, they'd end up in the same shape as these underpants. Jeremiah, in his ministry, becomes Captain Underpants. Um, uh, there's this image of him like running back to the people of God, having dug up his underpants from beside the river, waving around these, his head, going, if you don't change the way you're living, you're going to end up as useless <laughs> as these jocks. It's bizarre. It's fascinating. It's hilarious. But also there are some really heartbreaking moments in chapters 7 and 32 he recounts the story of the people of God turning from God to worship Molech by sacrificing their children to him this picture shows a um, uh, an idol of the god Molech and in his arms he's reaching out for these sacrifices On the front of his body, there would have been seven compartments. And in those compartments, you place different sacrifices. At the bottom, you would have placed in grains and fruits and that kind of thing. And as it went up, you also would have put in turtle doves and a ewe. And in the top compartment, you would have put in a child. And down here on the side, where these men are banging their drums, it's said that they were banging their drums so that the parents of the child couldn't hear their children screaming. It's almost impossible to imagine something worse more disgusting or destructive or repulsive than this. God himself says through Jeremiah, it didn't even enter my mind that you would do such a thing. And somehow it's almost worse for this to be the case with the Jewish people. So much of their understanding of who God was and who they were was based on Abraham's relationship with God. And when Abraham was ready to sacrifice his son Isaac, it was then that God stilled his hand. God was testing his faith, but he was also revealing who he is. When the command came, take your son Isaac and sacrifice him, Abraham never questioned it because he lived in a world where it was standard. Sometimes a God will ask for your child. And in stilling his hand, in stopping the sacrifice, what he's saying is that is not the kind of sacrifice that I am asking for. I will never ask you for your child. And so the nation of Israel, they break all the commandments. In particular, this first one, not to worship other gods, but also they break the entire tradition of the story, which is the God who has liberated them from this kind of destructive image of worship. They've rejected him. They've rejected him as the one who rescued them from Egypt, the one who brought them to the promised land. And promised to make them a blessing to all nations, and instead they've placed their trust in a God who demands their children and offers nothing. God is heartbroken, and so is Jeremiah. He's often called the weeping prophet, and he weeps for who his people have been, and he weeps for the future that is to come as a result of the way in which they've lived. Despite his repeated prophecies about the danger they're in as a result of the choices that they've made, the people will not listen to Jeremiah. They put him on trial, they mock him, they beat him, and they try to have him killed. And yet he manages to continue his passionate, tearful ministry with this unquenchable urgency. In Jeremiah 20, it says, uh, Jeremiah says, if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, then within me there is something like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I am weary holding it in, and I cannot. The word of God, the message of God is like a fire in my bones. If I try to hold on to it and keep it within myself, it's like it, it almost begins to burn me, and so I must, I must let it out, this calling to speak the truth, no matter how much it hurts no matter where it takes me, no matter what it brings to my life. Despite all of his warnings and despite his warnings to King Zedekiah, Israel joins Egypt's plot to overthrow the Babylonians and Jerusalem falls and the temple is ransacked. The king's family are killed in front of him and then the king is blinded and dragged off to Babylon in chains and Jeremiah is left in the ashes. Israel falls like a great tree in the woods, and Jeremiah watches its descent. And yet, and yet, the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice, and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. If we go to the next slide here. This is the, as I was preparing and thinking about this idea of a righteous branch, I imagined this this nation, this kingdom that had once been doing so well, it's almost like it falls in the woods, and it's like its roots are still attached, and and it's not over, but it's it's probably never going to, at least as far as Jeremiah can see, it's impossible for him to imagine it ever standing like it used to, and then there's this picture of a righteous branch, this new life, this bud bursting out of the side of it, the promise of the fulfillment of God, bursting out and bringing new life Because God has not broken his promises. It is not over. God has not walked away. He has not given up on his people. From this fallen tree, God will rise up, a righteous branch. So Jeremiah and his people, they awaited their promised king, Jesus who would burst into this world and usher in his kingdom who would fulfill God's promise to Jeremiah, this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. When he comes, he will take on all our inability to do what is right. All our brokenness, all our shame, all our guilt. He'll embrace our death and he will redeem it in resurrection. And as he does, the Lord becomes our righteousness. But we're not there yet because Advent isn't about that. Like Jeremiah, we wait for him to return, to make all things new. Like Jeremiah, we weep, faced with the brokenness and the heartbreak of our world, we weep. And faced with our own brokenness and the ways in which we have managed to get lost and forget who we are and who we are called to be, we weep. And like Jeremiah, we work. Advent is not about waiting with idle hands. We do not wait idly. We do not wait quietly. We work to build the kingdom of God until he comes and takes his throne. But we live in the tension of the waiting and the unresolved nature of all our stories, of our community's life, of our country's life, of the life of our world, in the midst of brokenness and heartbreak and violence and pain being passed back and forward, we look to the one who will eventually come and redeem it all. And so we wait, we weep, and we work. Let's pray.